The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. Generosity is the quality of being kind, plentiful, abundant, lavish, not selfish, willing to share, generous in spirit. Last week, uh, I I said, and I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, that I think you would be hard-pressed to find a person living in your neighborhood or in your family or at your school who doesn't see what I just read as a good thing, maybe even the right thing. We know that we should be generous. But why? Why should we be generous? What is the motivation for being generous? Are we generous because people deserve our charity? Are we generous because it makes us feel good to give of our time, our money, to share our possessions? No. As Christians, we are people of the gospel. And so, our motivation for generosity comes from a different place. We are generous for no other reason than for grace, by grace, because of grace. A Christian is a person who knows that all of their hope, all of their peace, all of their joy, all of their happiness comes as a gift from the generous giver, God himself. Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, If you have money, power, or status today, it is due to the century and the place in which you were born. If you have talents or capacities or health, none of those things you earned. All of your resources are in the end a gift of God. And then he concludes by saying, A lack of generosity then is a refusal to acknowledge that your assets are not really your own, but God's. But what does living generously look like in community, in Christian church community life? The passage that was just read shows us this. The early church in Acts came together to form, these were the very first gospel communities Communities changed by the grace of Jesus, motivated by the grace of Jesus. And so we see them being incredibly generous towards each other. But here is the kicker to all of this, is that they were not told to do this. It was natural. It was, as some call it, an overflow of grace. Now, how does this happen? How do people become this generous towards each other? We're going to look at three things this morning that the early church did that show us how we can, too, follow their example. The things that we need to pay attention to are how the gospel renews our community mindset, it renews our economic mindset, and it renews our identity mindset. Our community, our economic, and our identity mindset. I heard a story uh, bunch of years ago, and two-sided. 
I, I heard a story a bunch of years ago about a man who was converted to Christianity from an inner city gang in New York City. He was in the thick of the gang life and then uh, through a, a, a street ministry came to know Jesus, converted to Christianity, and got, got plugged into a local church and began meeting people in this church, formed a relationship with the pastor. But after a few months of belonging to this church and separating himself from gang life, he stopped attending church. He stopped uh, associating himself with those Christians that he began to know and so the pastor reached out to him and said, can we get, grab a coffee? I haven't, I haven't seen you in, in a few weeks, and I want to see how you're doing. And he said, he said, I thought that belonging to a church would be a little bit like belonging to a gang. See, in the gang, we, we love each other unconditionally. We, we share everything that we have. We are completely devoted to the well-being of the other person. But that is not what they experienced in the church. And so he left now, this man had an expectation about what church community was like and the generosity that, that, that flows through its veins. Now, the question that we have in front of us is, is that expectation a worthy expectation? Is that a right thing for this person to expect that the church community is completely for each other and meeting their needs? We read in uh, verse 32 that Luke says that all the believers were in one heart and one mind. And later he says that there were no needy persons among them. Now follow me down a rabbit trail for a few minutes, and we will come across the finish line. Just trust me on this one, okay? I have to back it up, because there's something incredibly fascinating that Luke is doing in this passage, but we need to take a step backwards and see what's going on in the Old Testament. Some of you who have been attending church for a little while may have heard the word covenant before. A covenant is a special kind of promise. It is a relationship promise. Those are two words, to, or two words that I'm putting together. It's a relationship promise. And it's a relationship because a covenant is, is more loving and more intimate than simply a legal um, a legal binding um, contract. So it's, it's more loving and intimate than a business deal, for example. That is the relational side of it. But it is a promise that is, has more accountability attached to it, uh, more um, enduring and more binding than merely a personal friendship. And so by fusing these two words together, the Bible describing covenant in this way increases the, 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 the impact that it can have on people. A covenant is very powerful. It is it's, a, it's a loving relationship, and it's also binding and enduring and, and holds a person accountable. Now, what we have, the, the best that we can probably do to, that we, most of us know about to, to talk about a covenant is how Christians talk about the marriage covenant. It is, it is a lifelong thing that we strive for. When, when, a, when people get together and they say, I do, what they're saying is, I commit myself to loving you forever. 
right? That, those are the promises. It's a, it's a covenant together. A covenant is two-sided, too. It involves two different parties. Now, covenant in the Bible goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. One of the most famous covenants, there's, there's a few of them, but one of the most famous ones that we often think about is the covenant that God made to Abraham. Abraham, God comes to Abraham and says, I pick you. You are the person that I'm revealing myself to, that I'm going to bless, that I'm going to be in a relationship with, and you in turn are going to represent me to the nations. I will bless you. You will bless others. I will be your God. You will be my people. And so Abraham enters into this covenant relationship with God and and then Israel li- continues to live. You know, Israel is the nation that comes out of the family of Abraham. And when they, they, you know, they go, they get enslaved. And I'm really fast-forwarding through some Bible history here. But they get enslaved in Egypt, and God sets them free through the Exodus. And they arrive at Mount Sinai, and they receive the law, the law of God given to them as a gift. And that is what Bible scholars say is the, the main way that Israel upheld their end of the covenant— It is how they lived in right relationship with God. They followed, they abided by the law, the law given to them through Moses. Now, the law is, as some people describe it, showing us what humans were built to do. And so that is the way that God wants wants Israel to represent him to the nations. They follow this because the law is, in writing, what, what we were built to do. Love God and love each other. Are you following me? I hope so. Okay, buckle up. We're going to keep going. Now, the law is repeated in the Bible in two places. It's, in, it's given to us in, in Exodus, but it's also in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy means second law, and it was the way that the Israelites reminded the next generation that was entering the promised land what the law was about. Remember, they had, they had wandered through the desert for many, many years, and some of them had forgotten about the law. So they, they were reminded of it. Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy 15, we're getting there. Deuteronomy 15, we read that the Israelites were commanded to do something incredibly unique. Every seven years was a year called the year of Jubilee. It was a year in which all debts were forgiven. If you owned land that, was, that you had inherited for, because somebody had to sell it to pay off a debt that they had to somebody else, you had to return it to the family that owned it before. It was a year that leveled the playing field. Everything was returned to its rightful owner. Things had a massive economic reset in the entire land. The year of Jubilee. Every seven years, this happened. And the reason why this happened was so that there would be no needy persons among them. Interesting how Luke brings that very same thing back here. He says it in the exact same wording and phrasing as it is in Deuteronomy 15 when when Israel is describing the way in which they would live in relationship with each other, that there would be no needy persons among them. Why would they be generous with all they had? Why would they reset and forgive? It was to enact mercy and justice it was to be generous to each other. Now, what if this is showing up here in the book of Acts? Because Luke is saying to us, dear reader, 
the church, the church community is the new covenant community. What if it's because we are in the same relationship with God as the Israelites were in the Old Testament? What if it's because we are called to live as examples to the world and being generous with each other and enacting mercy and justice and representing a richly generous God? What if that is what Luke is trying to tell us here in this passage? You see, in the same way that Israel was a model for the nations, the church is now a model of the kingdom of God to the world. We are a paradigm. We are a counterculture. As Tim Keller says it, we are a living example of what life is like under the Lord's rule and reign. We are a new covenant community. And not the same covenant community. We are a new covenant community living out our lives by grace. Right? Paul talks often about this, how we are set free from the law. We are now under a new law, the law of grace. And in this way, generosity towards each other is still a covenantal command, a command by the grace of Jesus. Now for Israel, it did not matter at all whether or not you got along with your neighbor or not, whether or not they thought the same things you thought, um, liked the same things you liked. What mattered was that they were a part of the covenantal community of Israel. By that fact alone, your neighbor was worthy of all of the benefits, all of the generosity. As Reformed Christians, we know that none of us is able to earn a single drop of God's love and acceptance. You don't belong to this community because of your moral performance. You don't belong to this community because you've been here for 50 years. You don't belong to this community because of the stage of life that you're in. Or anything. You belong to this community by the grace of Jesus Christ alone. He has called you to this place. Which means that our community life is based on an entirely different set of values than other communities in the world. Right? Our world tends to divide us and tell us that we have to get along with people who are like us. Left versus right. Rich versus poor. Educated versus uneducated. On the mountain versus down the mountain. Married versus single. Leaf fan versus sens fan. Some of those will go unnamed. But the values of our community is based on something entirely different. It's based upon the undeserved grace of Jesus and a relationship with him. But we forget this. In his New Testament letter, the Apostle James tells the believers, he says, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. So if, you've, if, if, if you find yourself um, poor in spirit, poor in IQ, poor in possessions, poor in whatever, then you ought to take pride in your high position. In Christ, meaning that you are an heir of the kingdom of God, a beloved in the eyes of the Most High. You inherit everything, everything. You need to think about your high position. But then James goes on and says, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation. And that could be rich in money, rich in IQ, rich in possessions, rich in ego even. You ought to take pride in your low position. Because it's only by basis of your need for Jesus that you come to him. 
What qualifies us for a relationship with Jesus is need. Do we need him? And so we are brought together as a community under completely different standards than anything else, operating in completely different ways. A renewed community mindset, then, means that we have to see ourselves and each other belonging to the kingdom of God by undeserved grace. And that each person, if we look around, each person is at the same place that we are. The ground is completely level at the foot of the cross. We have to see each other in the same way. This also leads us then to a renewed economic mindset. I'm not going to spend as much time on this point because I did spend some time in it last week when we talked about our upward relationship with God and, and generosity. But verse 32 tells us that no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. Now what we see in verse 32 is a renewed approach to our assets, our time, our money, our possessions. Now on the one hand, Luke does not go out and report that all the Christians sold everything that they had and embraced a lifestyle on the border of poverty. He doesn't do that, as some have advocated for in the past. Luke refuses to take that stand. Instead, and at the same time, they did not continue on with life as usual. They were marked by radical generosity all the same. And they were not concerned with building up wealth for themselves. They had possessions, and yet they were radical in sharing everything that they had to the point that there was no needy persons among them. Being generous towards each other means we have to know deep down in our hearts, then, that what we have is not actually ours. It's God. And God has given it to us to be used for this reason. As I said before, if you have money, power, and status today, it's not of anything that you've done. It's a gift given to you by God. If you have talents and capacities and health, it's the same thing. These are gifts. A renewed economic mindset starts with seeing our assets as God's assets. Now, this means that we should, we should still work hard at school— you should still devote your time and energy to work and to your vocation and calling. You should earn money for your families and communities. These are all good things. At the same time, we are to think of these things completely different as Christians. The purpose of our assets is to bless others. After all, this is how Christ has treated us. He used what he had so that we could live. One pastor put it like this, While there may be rich Christians, there should not be rich living Christians. Middle and upper class income Christians are not required to give away all their capital, but they must invest it in good deeds rather than their own comfort. Now what does that mean, investing in good deeds rather than their own comfort? Here's a simple rule that I found helpful. Give until you feel the burden of the needy upon yourself. Give until you feel the burden of the needy upon yourself. The fact that the rich in this church, those who had assets, sold them to meet the needs means that this principle applies in the book of Acts. When there was a need, when there was a burden that was felt, the Christians sold in order to meet that need. 
they had to do something about it because they felt the burden of a brother or sister who was in need. Rosaria Butterfield is a Christian author and speaker, and she wrote a book about Christian hospitality. And in this book, uh, she talks about how living as a Christian can cut into our own lifestyles. And this doesn't apply exactly into the sermon per se, because she's talking about hospitality. But I think her words for us, if we can hear them in this, in a different way, will apply. She says this. She says, Kent and I have to budget for it, and it hurts. Practicing daily, ordinary Christian hospitality doubles our grocery budget and sometimes triples it. There are vacations we do not take, house projects that never get started, entertainment habits that never get an open door, new cars and gadgets that we don't even bother coveting. Our children will never be Olympic-level soccer stars, wear designer clothes, or have social calendars requiring a staff of drivers. It costs money and time and heartache to run a house that values this kind of thing. But, and this is important, but with eyes wide open, we behold what contagious grace looks like and what it does to people and the world and the church. That is what we are about, beholding the grace of Jesus that transforms life. That is what the opportunity of our generosity brings forward to us. Yes, it cuts into our lifestyles. Yes, it means that we feel the burden of the needy, but we also witness transformation. How can we grow in this? As your pastor, I know absolutely full well that a sermon will not change you. Nor will anything that anyone tells you. The early church didn't even become generous because they heard a sermon about it or because they felt bad for the needy among them. They became radically generous because they had an experience of grace that blew them out of the water. We're told in verse 33, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and the grace of God was powerfully in them all. In this verse, Luke connects two things together. The resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and the grace of God that was powerfully at work. I think that is the recipe for transformation. You see, each, each one of us has needs. We don't like to think about it, but we each have needs that we need met. Some of us struggle financially, others emotionally, others physically. Some of us feel like we are too broken, sinful to be really worthy of love. Others find it incredibly difficult to look at themselves in the mirror and be okay with how they look. Others, it's that we don't feel successful enough or smart enough. And then Jesus comes along. And he changes everything because Jesus says to you, you know that feeling that you have, that forever empty feeling? That feeling that you're living your life always from a deficit, always trying to catch up, always trying to fill it with something, and it never quite gets full. Always trying to catch up on finances, catch up on friends, catch up on body image, 
always trying to fill that need. See, I have come, Jesus says, I have come to fill it and fill it always. For God so loved the world. It was from an overflow of his love that Jesus came to earth. That means you, that means me. We are met with the love of Christ. And when we meet a love like that, someone who would go as far as Jesus went for us, it begins to detach our hearts from the other things in life that we cling to. Money, possessions, pride, ego, shame, guilt. Jesus came so that you might live. And he rose again from the dead. Or the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That means for us that Jesus hasn't just died for us. He lives for us. He has blown a hole through death. And everything is going to be okay. He rose again. It's game over. Right? The buzzer beater shot has dropped. We know what the outcome of the game is. And this changes everything. It changes who we are. We are children of the beloved God who gave himself for us, defeated sin and death, and rose again victorious. We have everything that we will ever need. See, if the gospel is true, then that means that Jesus Christ was cast out of the family of God on the cross. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was because he was cast out of the Trinity. He lost his relationship with his father so that you could be adopted into the family of God forever. Jesus Christ made himself poor, embracing extreme poverty. He, when he went up on the cross, he didn't have a single thing to his name. Even his, the clothes on his back were given away so that you could become rich in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus Christ took upon your burden of sin so that you could cast it off by sheer undeserved grace. You have everything you will ever need. And Christ only asks you to do for your brothers and sisters what he has done for you already. This is what it means to be changed by grace. Now, how do we live this way as a church? Not to say that we aren't living that way already. How do we continue to live this way as a church? Now, this isn't just the deacon's job. This is everyone's job. The priesthood of all believers applies. We are all called to be generous towards each other, especially those who are, we are in covenantal community with here at First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church. Look around. This is your family. These are your brothers and sisters. This means we have to get to know each other and each other's needs. We cannot meet needs that we do not know. We have to ask the hard questions about what being radically generous means for you, personally, your family. What does that, how does that impact our budget? How does that impact our social calendar? How does this impact our house and how we run our house? We have to ask ourselves those hard questions. And then we have to be willing to step out in faith. As I mentioned last week, God wants to rain down blessing upon us, but he can't if our hands 
are holding things too tightly. We have to be willing to step out and release, knowing that Jesus is with us. Generosity is the quality of being kind, plentiful, abundant, lavish, not selfish, willing to share, generous in, in spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your generosity towards us that knows no limits, has no boundaries, that you know our needs and meet them. God, we love you. And we want to grow in our generosity towards each other. I pray that you would bless our church as we wrestle with this, as we figure out what this means for us. How do we get to know each other more? How do we meet each other's needs? How does this impact our own lifestyle and budget? Our own time and energy? Our own households? God, we need your grace to overflow out of our lives. We want to be a light in this world, to represent you to our neighbors and our friends. We pray that there would be no needy persons among us. In Jesus' name, amen.